Here on today's broadcast of Graceful Truth, our teacher and pastor, Pastor Steve Converse, will continue our examination of Haggai. Join us. It's a series out of the book of Haggai, simply entitled, Bring Back the Glory. Welcome to Graceful Truth with Pastor Steve Converse from Grace Bible Church in Redwood City. We're dealing with the right people. The people whom God directed His Word were in the right place. The people wanted to be about the right work, and they were working for the right reasons. The people in the place are the subject of our time today, the folks that Haggai is writing to. You and I fit into this category as well, as we'll see. Please join us. Here's our teacher and pastor, Steve Converse, with a marvelous look at the book of Haggai, here on this edition of Graceful Truth. So let me give you a little bit of historical background of what's happening here in this little book. We know that up to this point, there's been prophecies made throughout history, throughout the different prophets, Habakkuk, other, that are going to come to pass. The Lord would say things like, I will work a work in your day. And then God did that work. God told Habakkuk, I'm going to raise up the Chaldeans and they're going to come in like a flood and they're going to take all of you and take you captive and they're going to hold you in Babylon. Well, that's exactly what happened for 70 years. So now here we are in the prophet Haggai and it's, once I said before, a post-exilic prophet, which means after the exile. And Judah, the nation of Judah, has now returned to Babylon. It's the year five. 36 BC, and they spent basically 70 years in captivity in Babylon. Now, you remember that Babylon Empire has been defeated. It was defeated by the Medo-Persian Empire, and you can read about that in the book of Daniel. You read about Belshazzar, and remember his drunken orgy, whatever was going on back there, and all of a sudden God told him that his days were numbered and he was found waiting and wanting in the scales, and it says that this man Cyrus came in and conquered the whole of that empire. And when Cyrus came in, when the the Medo-Persian empire was reigning, the Judean exiles were under the control of King Cyrus. It's very important to understand that, because King Cyrus was the king who allowed them to return from Babylon to Jerusalem, some 50,000 in the remnant there. So they come back from Babylon because King Cyrus allowed them to do that. They come back to Jerusalem. Cyrus was gracious enough towards them to, to let them begin to build their temple. So they began to rebuild the altar of the offering and they put a foundation of the temple down. But what the Jews didn't understand is they wanted to do it all themselves. And there was a group called the Samaritans, and you can read about that, as I said, in Ezra chapter 3 and 4. And this group of Samaritans that were kind of used as scoundrels, they wanted to help rebuild the temple. And the purebred Jews said, no way, we're going to build this temple ourselves. We're going to build it our way. We're not going to allow you mongrel Samaritans to have a part in it. You're not going to have anything to do with it. Well, obviously, that ticked the Samaritans off. They wanted to be part of the building of the temple too. The the Jews wouldn't allow them to do that. And so, as a result, they went back to King Cyrus and they told all sorts of lies about what was going on. They they made up all these plots and all, all sorts of things. They just made this stuff up out of thin air. Well, what happened was, as a result of that, the building of the temple was delayed for about 16 years. All because of some Samaritans back in their day. 
And for 16 years, the foundations of that temple got overgrown with weeds, began to turn to rubble, basically, all because the the Judean children were discouraged because they had some opposition of the Samaritans. And you can read all about that in Ezra chapter 4. So for 16 years, no work at all was done to the temple. None. All there was there was foundations. That was it. Well, time passed, and eventually King Cyrus died. And by the way, his son also committed suicide. And after that, Darius I came into power. And when he came into his rule, he found this old decree by King Cyrus. What was his decree? His decree was that the children of Judah were allowed to come back from Babylon to Jerusalem, but also that they were allowed to rebuild their temple. And Darius I found it again, and because of that, he paved a way for the children of Judah to now begin, once again, after 16 years, rebuilding their temple that they started. Can you imagine starting a project that you began 16 years ago? I mean, it's kind of exciting to start new projects, right? Start new projects, maybe you're doing something in the backyard, or you're working on your car, whatever. It's kind of exciting at first. But if things don't work out just the way you want... And that project continues and continues and goes on and on and on and on. I mean, can you imagine that happening for 16 years? And that project, unfinished, is still there. Well, their problem, because after 16 years, the Jews had become apathetic. 16 years had gone by, they were discouraged, they were disappointed. Because you know what? They couldn't build that temple in the beginning because of the Samaritans' opposition And so now they got themselves into this situation where they were just weighed down by all the negatives of their situation. Their circumstances just far outweighed any hope that they had. And even when King Darius said, go ahead, build the temple. You can do it. I'm allowing you to. Go for it. They couldn't bring themselves to rebuild God's temple. Even though they knew that's what they were supposed to be doing. So in the second year of King Darius, 520 B.C., That's where we're at now, historically. Hopefully that puts things in perspective for you. And and God selected Haggai to be the prophet to encourage these folks. Let's, Let's get it going. And what's interesting is within four weeks of this man opening his mouth, the work of God had begun on his temple. Pretty effective. He's a pretty effective prophet, even though his prophecies only lasted three months. Haggai opened his mouth and he told the message... As we've seen in chapter 1 verse, and in verse, uh, through verse 13, God's message for God's man at God's time. And he told it as God had told him to tell it. And eventually the work got started in four weeks and eventually the temple was erected. If you want to know what type of temple it was, it was Zerubbabel's temple. That's what it's known as. It began the age, the temple age the, of the second temple period. Now, the temple doesn't seem to be as extravagant and as beautiful as Solomon's temple. It doesn't even seem to have had at this point the glory of God or the Ark of the Covenant there. But nevertheless, God's word, when it came at God's time, and more importantly, when it was obeyed by God's people, had God's purpose in result. A couple verses I want you to look at. First one, verse 14 of chapter 1. Two key verses in the book. The first one, So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shetiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, 
the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and they worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, uh, their God. The second one is over in chapter 2, verse 9. It says, The glory of this latter temple shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, says the Lord of hosts. Now, before we actually get in next week to studying this verse by verse, I want you to notice a couple things about the timing of this prophet. A couple things about the timing of this prophet. Uh, This was a prophet who had God's message. He was God's man with God's message in God's time. And he was God's messenger. Why had it come in God's time? Why did the prophet, was he raised up at this time? Well, as you look at this month, this day in the month that we're reading, it basically indicates that it was a six-month period. This, this month of Elul is the sixth month. And so the month before Elul was the month when the whole of Judah would have remembered the destruction of the temple some 70 years previous. So temples were in their mind during this time. They lost their prized possession just the month before, 70 years ago, the place where God dwelt. Secondly, the timing when this prophecy was given is significant because it was the first day of the month. And the first day of the month in their culture was kind of like a Sabbath almost, a day of rest. It was a holy day. It was a day when they would worship God. It was a day when the people came to listen to what the message of God was through the prophet of God. See, God had this all set up. So you might consider Haggai with a prophet with he had a captive audience. They came and they were ready to hear something. Just a word on this. That's what we need to understand today. When we come to church on Sundays, I pray that you come prepared to hear God's word. You don't just kind of wander in off the street and, hey, I think I'll listen to a sermon today. But you come prepared to hear God's word. Not my words, but God's word. And even people that don't even know Christ who come, they need to have their hearts prepared to hear God's word. Only he can do that. We can't do that. But as the seed of God's word is given out and it falls on to good ground, the Bible says that only God can, can make that happen. But he does that in response to our prayers. So in verse 1 of Haggai chapter 1, it says there, mentions two people specifically, Zerubbabel and Joshua. Two key people, Zerubbabel and Joshua. Zerubbabel was the, you might consider him the civil leader of Judah. He was the political head. Joshua, on the other hand, was the spiritual leader. He was the high priest. And you say, well, why did God give this message to them? Why didn't he just give it to the people? Why did he give it to the leaders? If you look at the lineage of Zerubbabel, you're going to find out that he was an heir to King David, to the Davidic throne. He was in the Messianic line. He was related to the lordship of Jesus Christ himself. Joshua, of course, was the high priest. He was important because he was the one who was to lead God's people, hopefully back to God. But why did he give it to just two these two people and not to the rest of the folks? I'll tell you why. Because God knows, as he knows in any age and in any church, that if somehow he can grab a hold of and ignite the hearts of the leadership of an organization, of a church, whatever it might be, then it will inspire the people. It was Wesley who said this, if your pulpit is on fire, they'll come to watch you burn. (laughs) See, we need to understand that we have to believe that we're 
we're here in this place strategically, just like Haggai was, at God's time. It's not about us. It's about God. It's about God carrying out His will through our church, through our lives personally. Now, a couple things here about the people and the place. And this starts to kind of begin our application. Next week, we're actually going to get into his first message. But like I said, you just got to lay down this foundation and you're not going to have a clue when we get into the text what we're talking about. But these people were not like all those who lived in Israel and Judah previously. The people that Haggai was speaking to were not like them. They were neglecting to build the temple. And that was serious in God's eyes, obviously. It was an indication that somehow their spiritual priorities were off. They weren't right. They were basically living for themselves rather than living for God's glory. But you know what? They were still the right people. Living in the right place. Wanting to do the right work for the right reasons. And I just want to talk a couple minutes about these things. Haggai was dealing with the right people. There were select people whose devotion to and zeal for God were evident in their lives. Uh, It's summed up in the spiritual meaning of the word remnant. That's what they were referred to. It means that they were not the entire body of Jewish people of all time. Many thousands had been carried away into Syria. Others had been deported to Babylon, different places. In fact, when, when King Cyrus issued the decree permitting the Jews to return to their homeland and rebuild their temple... Most of the exiled Jews remained in Babylon. They didn't want to make the trip. They'd settled down. They prospered during their their period of exile there for 70 years. It was only around 50,000 that actually left Babylon, 42,360 to be exact, plus 7,337 servants and 200 singers. They actually left Babylon and made the long journey back to Judah with Zerubbabel. One commentator says this, the remnant to whom the message was given was composed of Israelites who were distinguished by special devotion to the Lord. It was their devotion to him and their zeal for his house that the cause that was the cause of their separation from the mass of their brethren who remained behind in Babylon. They were therefore a choice company of people. They had been separated for a purpose of great importance for the direct line of God's dealings was to continue with them to the coming of Christ. They were the right people. See, we have to believe in our hearts that, you know what, we're the right people today. That we're not here to be entertained. We're not here to just to have a big church to have a big church. That's not what we're about. We're here to do what God calls us to do. And I think that if you've been here for any length of time, you understand what our church is about. You're not going to come in and see some spectacle on a Sunday morning that's going to whet your appetite and cause you to come back for more next week, bigger and better, brighter lights, louder music. That's not going to happen here. That's not what it's about. And I think a majority of us understand that. And I think that it relates. We're the right people for what God is calling us to do. The second thing... The people to whom God directs his word through Haggai were in the right place. They were in the right place. They were in Jerusalem. They weren't in Babylon with the people that stayed back. Those who preferred to uh, have their own way of life and prosperity back there. They didn't want to put up with the rigors of returning to Jerusalem. 
they had already settled down. See, today God is not restricting his work to a particular place. God doesn't do that. Remember when the Samaritan woman asked Jesus whether the mountain of Gerizim in this Samaria or Jerusalem was a proper place to worship? Remember that? In John, 4, John chapter 4, Jesus replied, Believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. Yet a time is coming and now has come when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. See, that's what our hearts should be all about when we come together on a Sunday morning. We want to worship God in spirit and truth. Anything else is fluff. That time came with his own death and his own resurrection as Jesus spoke those words. But it was not yet true in the days of Haggai the old prophet in the Old Testament. It was a period when God had placed a special value on Jerusalem. That was their homeland. They were required that sacrifices for sin be made there and nowhere else. So if you had to do that, you would have to go to Jerusalem to do it. And he had actually punished his people by exiling them. But he also promised to bring them back after 70 years of their exile were finished. See, this was the hope of the people while they were in Babylon. They were in the right place. And the people had returned with Zerubbabel. It wasn't an easy journey. I mean, think about it. You're living somebody somewhere 70 years. You're being held captive for 70 years. And then all of a sudden, hey, you're free to go. 70 years is a long time. You're going to put down some roots. And so when the call to return came, they left Babylon and got back to Jerusalem as soon as possible because they knew that was the right thing to do. God sends him to a particular place and to a specific group of people with God's message. They were the right people, but they were also in the right place. Sometimes you have to settle that in your own heart. We must also be in the right place. Third, the remnant to whom Haggai spoke also wanted to be about the right work. What are we to be about as Christians? I mean, there are a lot of things that we need to do. You know, there's a lot of things in our lives that sometimes clutter our time schedules. These folks needed to provide homes for their families, obviously. They needed to make a living. In their case, largely it was through farming. They needed to establish schools, shops, commerce, trade. And these are all valid pursuits. Nobody's going to look at that and go, what are you doing that for? It makes sense. See, but in addition to these, and chief among these, God wanted the people to know and understand that they also needed to be about rebuilding the temple which is what God had put into their heart through King Cyrus in a decree in his sovereignty. As Ezra tells us, the first thing the people did when they arrived in Jerusalem was take a freewill offering toward the rebuilding of the house of God. First thing they did. It was a substantial offering. Don't worry, we're not taking an offering this morning, and that's not the purpose of bringing it up. I'm just telling you what they're doing. Ezra says this, according to their ability, they gave to the treasury for this work 61,000 drachmas of gold, 5,000 minions of silver, and 100 priestly garments. It's in Ezra chapter 2. In our weight, the gold was 1,100 pounds. That's quite a bit. You look at the price of gold, man, 13,200 ounces. Have you ever seen that show, the gold people and their whatever, gold diggers or whatever they're called? That show, Gold Rush, that cracks me up, that show. They're still holding out for the glory hole, you know. The silver weighed three tons. And see, the people used this money to pay the masons and the carpenters to transport the cedar logs from Lebanon they needed. 
And then in the second month of the second year in Judah, after they had established themselves and presumably bought brought in their, their first harvest and everything, they began to work and progressed as far as laying the foundation of this great temple. They got that far. They clearly wanted to serve God and put His work above their own interests. I thank God that, I mean, our church may be small, but a lot of folks within our own church desire to serve God. And they desire to put God's work above their own interests. I see it on a weekly basis. Fourthly, the people were working for the right reasons. And this is critical. And we'll close with this. I mean, we can imagine them rebuilding this temple, setting out on this, asserting themselves. And, you know, they have this national pride. We're going to restore this temple. The Babylonians destroyed our temple, and now we're going to show them. We're going to rebuild it again. We can imagine them even attempting to construct a monument to their own fierce independence, something like the Tower of Babel. See, they, those things didn't motivate them. They were not their motivations. So many times today, people are all about church growth, are all about interested in, in growing a big church for the wrong reasons. It's not about growing a big church. Last time I checked, Jesus Christ is in charge of his church, and he's doing just fine. That doesn't mean we don't pray for people to be saved. It doesn't mean we don't go out and witness We don't go out and invite people and and go out into the highways and byways and encourage people to come. Why? Because this is a fantastic church? No, because they're going to hear the Word of God. Their sole desire was to please God. That's why they wanted to do this. Philip Morrow says this, They were characterized by affection and zeal for God's house. And this is a great thing in his sight. Not only so, but in pursuit of that object, they had voluntarily turned away from all the magnificent grandeur and luxury of Babylon, where after a long residence, the people of God had become thoroughly domesticated. They had faced trials and difficulties in crossing the intervening territory, and the result of all their efforts and hardships was but to bring them to a desolated land and a ruined city. So their devotion and zeal for the Lord's interest had been fully proved. There was nothing to attract them to that land and to that city except the fact that it was God's holy land and the city which he had chosen to put his name there. So the people to whom Haggai spoke were the right people at the right place doing the right work for the right reasons. And yet years had gone by and they were caught up in their own pursuits to the point where they let the work for which they had come originally to Jerusalem, they just let it slide. No temple continuing to be built. 16 years since anybody even touched the foundations. And there's many people in our day that are similar like that. They're not unbelievers. You wouldn't even say they're unconcerned believers. These people want to know what the will of God is. They want to do the will of God. At least they did at one time. Perhaps they used to witness to their neighbors, their friends, their co-workers. Perhaps they were zealous for God in the years immediately following their conversion. But, you know, life moves on. And now there's a job, or wife, or children, or pick your myriad of dozens things, a dozen things that you can pick from, a million things to think about. And somehow, well-meaning Christians somehow have left the work of God slide. They've left the work to a younger generation, or newer Christians. And the word of God by Haggai comes to such people like that. 
to you if you're somebody like that. God says, what is the condition of my house? What is the condition of my work in your home, in your church, in your neighborhood, at your job, in your city, in your land? What are you doing? He's asking you this morning to fulfill the purpose for which you have been set apart to Jesus Christ to fulfill. Well, it is our prayer here at Graceful Truth that God would reveal His grace to your hearts through the teaching of His Word each week. We trust you're currently involved in a Bible teaching church in your area. If not, we'd love to have you come and visit us here at Grace Bible Church in Redwood City. We meet each Sunday morning for our praise and worship service at 10 a.m. We offer nursery care and Sunday school classes for our children up to grade five. If you'd like to encourage us here at Graceful Truth, please give us a call at Grace Bible Church here in Redwood City. This is our phone number, 650-366-9923. Again, that's 650-366-9923. Or you can visit us on the web at gracefultruth.org. We've got a lot of resource materials available there, more information about who we are, and if you need a map to visit us at Grace Bible Church, that's there as well. Again, gracefultruth.org. And would you please drop us an email? Let us know you paid us a visit when you stop by. Again, gracefultruth.org. Or give us a call at 650-366-9923. Again, that's 650-366-9923. We thank you for joining us today and trust we'll see you again next week at this same time for another broadcast of Graceful Truth. Graceful Truth.